Hi, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Harry Kim on Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to the second season finale of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. So today we have a very special episode for you. So instead of us rambling on, let's just get right to it. Let's do it. Today we are joined by three very special guests. The first is the co-writer of the Next Generation episode, Sarek, and the author of the book we are going to be talking about today, These Are the Voyages, Mark Cushman. How's it going, Mr. Cushman? It's going terrific. Thanks a lot for joining us. The other two guests are um, John D.F. Black and Mary Black, who wor- both worked on Star Trek The Original Series. Mr. Black was the producer of the original series and writer of numerous episodes, including The Naked Time, and Mrs. Black was his executive assistant. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy really to be appreciate here. It. All, of, all of you, all of you included. It's uh, it's kind of like interviewing three presidents. <laughs> it's so it's a pretty big deal. Well, so, thank you very much. I'll be the vice president. John gets to be the president. He's he's the heir to Star Trek. He's the last producer there for us. Yeah, it, it really it really is an honor. So, Mr. Cushman, um, for listeners who may not know, what exactly is these are the voyages? It's a three-book series on the original Star Trek, TOS. Each book is uh, devoted to one, episode, uh, one season, so we right now have season one out, and season two will be coming out before the end of the year, and season three, book three, will be out around April 1st of next year. And we examine the production of every single episode, about 15 pages per episode, which takes you through the whole writing process, where you'll see all the memos from John D.F. Black and... Gene Roddenberry and Bob Justman and uh, the others going on up to Gene Kuhn later on and through the whole process. So you see the scripts being developed, including ones that never got produced. And then we have the, uh, the production diary, which takes you through the making of each episode, lets you know what was shot on what day and where and uh, who was sick and who was injured and what went right and what went wrong. And then we even have the uh, ratings for every episode as it was broadcast on NBC. So reading the book, you know, I really got the impression that uh, this is what it was like to to be there, you know, like on on the set or in the offices during the the making of this show. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Black, would you say that this book is an accurate portrayal of, of what it was like? Yes, I would. Mark did a superb job of acquiring information with the help of Gene Roddenberry and Bobby Jessman, I'm sure he told, I think that was in the book too. But everything in that book is absolutely gospel. And that's very strange to find that in a book about a series that covered all of those various and sundry pieces. Like so many people who participated, reading it, it was, it was kind of like seeing a movie of your own life, just reading it and... No, yeah, that did happen, and completely forgot about it. It was, it was, it's a very lively, living book. It was exciting for us. I've been getting a lot of calls from other people involved in the show, including Leonard Nimoy and Harlan Ellison and people like that, who uh, tell me that, uh, and Ralph Sineski, who directed many of the episodes, and he says, I had no idea 
so much drama took place before I came onto the set to direct the episode <laughs> with the writing of the script. So everybody knew their part of the story, and now they're finding out everybody else's part of the story. Uh, so they get to see it from all all different vantage points. Th- that is the thing that, that really sort of makes this book stand out from you know other books which are like it. And um, I, I you know I've heard a million people you know people who were there, uh, filmmakers and and just Star Trek fans in general. And every time they talk about this book, they they kind of preface it by saying, "This is the best book ever written about Star Trek." And I totally agree with that. It is actually, like, at times, incredibly cinematic. It feels sometimes like, how come this isn't the movie? <laughs> yeah, it could be a show in it, Yeah, there itself. could totally be a series about making Star Trek, and the characters are all there. It's really fascinating. The the, the description we're, of how everything uh, happens is amazing. We're looking into that, believe me. And uh, oh, the, 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 the hard part is, is trying to find somebody to play John D.F. Black. I mean, that's a <laughs> tough casting right there. I, I can imagine. Into that. And, and I'll tell you, um, since you mentioned it, I mean, that, that comes from my background of being a screenwriter. You know, and the difference between writing scripts and books is, is uh, for the most part, when you write about uh, something historical like the making of Star Trek, and you're doing it from a screenwriter's point of view, you make it happen right now in front of the audience. We're experiencing as it happens. We're not looking back. So if you're watching a World War II movie, you're on the edge of your seats because you're wondering if the sub's going to get shot, uh, get sunk or not. So the whole thing is to get the drama in there of it happening right now in front of us. And so you're in the room watching the scripts being written, thanks to all the, the excerpts from the memos from these, these uh, talented people who are writing to each other on every script, what everything they thought about every script. And you're on the set watching the, uh, the shows being produced, and uh, that, that's part of the fun of it. So you're right, it could be a screenplay, and I hope that it will be. This book actually came about um, because you were pitching a, a, a script to The Next Generation, Correct. Well, actually, it started in 1982. I was uh, working for a production company here in L.A., and they were doing a special on Star Trek, a uh, local TV special on it. And they sent me out to Paramount to interview Gene Roddenberry. And, uh, and he was very gracious and opened up his files to me and had his uh, assistant, uh, Susan Sackett, take me around the lot to where things were tucked away in different uh, storage facilities and gave me a copy of every script from the show and, and so on. And uh, and then he I, he showed me about seventy boxes filled with all these documents, all the memos and the various drafts of the outlines and the scripts and notes from the network and contracts and everything you can imagine. And I said, "This should be a book." And, and he said, "Well, you try to put it in a book." <laughs> and I couldn't. It, it ended up taking three books to get it all in there, and it could have been. It could have been uh, 79 books, one for each episode, if you really wanted to get crazy about it. And then I interviewed him again in 1989 when I pitched the uh, uh, the story for uh, Sarek. So uh, there was a span of several years there. I, I was just too busy to get going on this book and really didn't start writing the book until 2006. I mean, it's kind of great that, that all of those documents exist. And, you know, what, there's been so many people who have told so many stories about the making of the show that it, it is nice to have like a definitive version which actually has you know evidence in it because sometimes people's memories aren't the best that's actually astonishing though because so much of star trek's history has now become legend Mm -hmm. separating the fact from the fiction has got to be its own epic indiana jones adventure 
Well, you, you may notice in the book I don't censor anyone. I let everybody say what they remember. I interviewed everybody I could find, and for those who have sadly uh, passed away, I found our archival interviews uh, to try to get everybody's voices involved in this project and bring everybody together. So we see everybody's points of views, from William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, the people on the crew, the guest performers, uh, and on and on and on. And then we have all the documents uh, as well that ties it all together. And it, it's fun because quite often the memories and the documents do connect and it, the documents confirm everything everyone remembers. Sometimes there's slight variations, but you get all the different angles uh, looking at that. That's so, interesting. It could easily become a Rashomon type situation with entirely different stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, and, so it does hang Don, together. Don well. and Mary have tremendous recall. That's one thing. You know, I, I think of all the people I've interviewed, uh, their recall has probably been the most precise. And they'll remember exact dates of things. John will remember he turned in uh, his first draft of The Naked Time on a Friday and came in on Monday, and Gene had rewritten it. And, and very, very good recall of, of a lot of these things. So, so this is a question for all three of you. You know, reading the, uh, the early chapters of the book, it seems like a million things had to happen just in the right way in order for this show to actually get made. And I'm sure that's true of every show, but it seems like it was especially true of Star Trek. And I'm wondering, in, in your opinions, what was the one moment where uh, Star Trek came the closest to not getting made? I never knew anything about it not being able to be made. I never got, I was never privy to that information. But the fact of the matter is that we were dealing with something that had never been done before. Every time there was a show about outer space, nobody paid any attention to the fact that there were men and women on board that ship for two years, five years, ten years. Gene did know that there was a difference between men and women and that if they were in space for ex uh, a number of years, that there would be some relationships developed. I think it was an interesting question, because the awareness that it your question produced was the hassles that <laughs> Mark described in the book between Gene and the network and Gene and the front office when they, the rare time they happen. Uh, he never confided so far as we ever knew to anybody else. He took the fights on all by himself and then came back looking all smiley and confident and we never even knew they happened. And, and that's, wow. a good, that's a good leader. That's kind of like Captain Kirk. You know, you, you hide uh, your insecurities and you hide your worries because you can't dare let the crew see that this is happening. I mean, I learned that from being a director in TV. No matter what was going wrong, you never let your crew know. Because <laughs> how can they focus on their work if they think that the axe is about to fall? But going through these memos, you now find out. You see the letters back and forth between Gene and uh, NBC and all the, the, the threats and the disharmony that was going on and the budget concerns with Bobby Justman and uh, the board of directors trying to talk Lucille Ball out of making Star Trek, even after they sold the second pilot. And I never knew that, and I'd read the making of Star Trek and these other books. And it always seemed in those books the dilemma was getting the network to say, okay, let's go. I didn't realize that after the network said, let's go, uh, the board of directors said, no, <laughs> this is going to bankrupt us. 
And Lucille Ball had to say, we're going to go forward with this series. And sadly, the board of directors was right. It did bankrupt Desilu. It destroyed the studio. They had to sell to Paramount, and you'll read all about that in book two. But thank God for Lucy, because Star Trek has made history, not just from being the most popular show ever made now, the most rerun show in the history of TV, the most seen show in the history of TV, even beyond I Love Lucy. But look at all the inventions that have come out of that show from kids who were watching it and then grew up to become scientists and inventors and making the cell phone and the Internet and the PC and the CAT scans and MRIs and DVDs and Kindle and automatic opening doors for us who don't want to take the effort to push a door open. All that stuff in our lives is here because of a TV show. And when I see people who don't know Star Trek or don't like Star Trek or don't see the importance of Star Trek, and of course there's always going to be people like that, not everybody loves Star Trek, you know, I look at them and I think, your entire life is different because of this TV show, and you don't even know it. That's definitely true. So, Mr. Black, it seems like you had one of the hardest jobs on the show. You needed to preserve the work of these legendary sci-fi writers while simultaneously ensuring that the, the series didn't lose its voice. How difficult was it to find that, that balance? Well, uh, the issue at hand was, first of all, like with Harlan Ellison, you got to get him off his butt and get him to write it. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Had, we had some wonderful excuse makers among the sci-fi writers, uh, or they would be they would have some of the most obscene, absurd reasons, not obscene, absurd reasons for uh, being late delivering. I would take the call first that was going to go to John and get him given it, get him prepared for what it was he was going to be dealing with, and. Paul Schneider called in this one day when he was due for a story meeting in about 45 minutes, and he was coming in from the far reaches of the valley, and he told me that he would not be able to come in. He asked that I please tell John he was terribly sorry, but he had a flat tire, and when he got out to change the tire and remove the tire, it rolled down a hill, and it continued on like that and since i've been on the other side of that desk and been making excuses for john being late sometimes <laughs> i knew it was a fib but it, was a, it happens with writers they, they they're right they write they come up with some exciting excuses well, they're, very, they're very imaginative creative people so of course you picture paul snyder telling the story of himself chasing a tire down the hill to ventura boulevard or wherever and going through all this drama rather than just getting the script done and delivering it. And what's funny is after um, Mary had told me that story, I came across a letter from Paul Schneider for his second episode. His first episode was Balance of Terror, brilliant episode, and Paul Schneider mm -hmm. created Romulans. And uh, his second episode was The Squire of Gothis. And for that episode, there's a letter that he sent along with the first draft script or the, treat, the outline, I think, to uh, Gene Kuhn, making all these excuses as to why he was late. <laughs> so very typical. But as Mary can tell you, and she almost did, uh, Mr. Black uh, was known for doing a few of those things himself. <laughs> oh, yes. You don't ever, you never level with a producer. You never tell a producer, I'm sorry, I'm late, and I tried, and I couldn't make it. You don't say that. 
one time when John was working on Laredo and we went to a party uh, with one of the producers there and he cornered the two of us and said, every time I call to find out when a script is coming in, Mary says that John's in the shower. He must be the cleanest writer in town. <laughs> So, well, Mr. Cushman, I mean, you you've been on the other side of that. Uh, you you have been a writer for Star Trek. How did that experience, you know, pitching your your story for for Sarek to Next Generation, compare to uh, what you discovered the process was like on the original series? Uh, very similar, uh, and and I hadn't gone through all those memos at that time when I pitched to Gene for uh, Sarek, and I went in and pitched numerous other episodes to uh, Next Generation as well, and Voyager and Enterprise and and uh, so forth. But um, Gene was uh, first of all he was very open and very friendly in pitch meetings, as I'm sure John and Mary can tell you as well. Very creative, and he really respected creative minds. So if you uh, came up with uh, an idea that hadn't occurred to him, you know, he was very responsive to that. And he may rewrite you later, but he was very, very open and loved to get into conversation about, well, where can we go with this? And uh, with Sarak, you know, I I had um, pitched a few ideas to him that day, and he shot me down on each one before I could even get the first sentence out in a very polite way. And I said, well, here's a story about greed. And he says, oh, we, we don't have that anymore. You don't have greed anymore. No, no, our people have evolved beyond these petty little things. And, well, that makes it kind of tough for a writer. You say, well, here's a story about lust. Well, we don't have that anymore, and so forth. (laughs) And so I I say, you know, Jesus, everything I brought in, nothing's going to fly here. But I had one in my back pocket, as we always do, and uh, that was half half cocked, in a a sense, but uh, you have it just in case. And uh, so I said, well, Gene, I'm wondering uh, how old do Vulcans live to be? And he says, well, you know, we, we said in the previous series it's certainly over 200, but we're thinking maybe it could be like 300. And I said, and Sarek was pushing 200 in the, in, uh, the first series, uh, Spock's dad. And he says, right. And I said, Mark Leonard's still working, and Sarek could still be alive at the time of Next Generation. Uh, and he says, yes. And I said, so I'm, I'm just wondering, what would happen when a Vulcan goes through senility? What if Sark was brought out of retirement because only he could negotiate some deal somewhere, and uh, and he's trying to hide the fact that he's going through senility, and that got Gene's attention, and and he said, what would happen? What do you think would happen? And I said, well, you know, as we get older, we lose our ability to do certain things and and uh, wear certain masks that we wear better when we're younger, like in business meetings or so forth. I think we become more honest as we get older, actually. And I said, so it would be harder for a Vulcan to hide his emotions and what he's feeling. And if he's going through a lot of anxiety and a lot of angst over this, he's going to be expressing it or, because they're semi-telepathic, he might be putting those feelings into the person sitting next to him, which means everybody else on the Enterprise might get uh, itching powder down their pants in a sense. And Riker might challenge Picard's orders and a fight might break out and tend forward or whatever. And so he liked that idea, and, and we went forward with that. But what Gene always did, and I never experienced this, and I'd be curious to see if John had the same experience uh, with all the work he did in TV. Gene would ask you what the theme of the story was. It wasn't enough just to find out what the plot was going to be. He wanted to know what you as a writer were trying to say with this particular story. And as I read through all these memos from the first series, going back and forth between the, the creative staff, 
that was always a very important issue for all of them, is what is the theme, what is the statement of this particular episode? And I think that's why Star Trek lives on, is because it had messages, little morality plays. And, uh, and I don't know if other shows at that time were doing that. Perhaps John can let us know. Well, I don't know. I never thought in terms of a theme myself. And I don't know that anybody else... In fact, I had uh, a producer once ask me, yes, but what's the milieu of this story that I was pitching? And I said, a fucking, uh, excuse me, cattle boat. And I really couldn't go any further with it. Gene didn't really delve into anything with any depth. He, I think he played the cards very close to his vest. He knew what he wanted, and he made sure he got it, and that's why he rewrote writers, and he, that's even why he rewrote me. He wanted a dumb joke in, the, in one scene, so he put a dumb joke in. But that's neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is that he kept everything that he had in his mind in the forefront of his mind so that he could instigate those aspects into the characters. People, people who are in the business write how-to manuals. At that time, at least, he did not talk about theme. He did not talk about milieu. He didn't talk about anything, really, other than what, what's the story. What, what about uh, the, the idea, you know, like you were talking about with, um, when, when you were pitching for Next Generation, how he, he, he had all these restrictions on, on writers. You know, people often talk about, you know, the Roddenberry box. Uh, did that exist on the original series? From my, my experience of, of looking at all the memos, uh, now, I wasn't in the pitch meetings. John, John may have been. Uh, I've talked to Dorothy, who's in many of the pitch meetings after that, uh, Dorothy Fontana, and so forth. Um, it, it was uh, very open. Uh, th there weren't very many restrictions. They, they really didn't even seem to worry about what might not make the network as far as censorship in the conversations on the scripts. But that, those concerns obviously came up later, as you see in the memos in the book, or like The Enemy Within. You know, it wasn't until they had a first draft script that everybody started writing back and forth to each other saying, how are we going to get this on NBC? Captain Kirk is trying to rape Yeoman Rand in living color. <laughs> and, and this has never been done on television. Uh, and you even see letters from NBC saying, this cannot be one of the early episodes. We cannot have people... Uh, make up their minds about this character based on this episode. This has to be pushed way back in the season. Uh, it was remarkable that they allowed that scene even to be played. Uh, so obviously it was a free form as far as ideas were concerned, but then as you're preparing the scripts and you're dealing with the network and the censorship and broadcast standards and everything, you have to start pulling some things out of the scripts or, or changing them. And uh, John can probably speak to that better than me. Yeah, well, that's what we did. The network, uh, like, well, let's go back to Kellum DeForest, who was our censor uh, there at the studio. Kellum would send these memos, which had a lot to do with names, the characters, that or somebody lives in the valley whose name is, or somebody who lives in San Bernardino whose name is. And I can't really remember any scientific information that he passed on. But when we got to the information, when we got down to it, Everybody worked because it was their habit. Every writer worked from a research position. Stuff that he had read, things that he knew, things that he had hoped, things that he was hoping would happen. 
and they were it was a wonderful bunch of guys to work with and Dorothy of course uh, but there was no anticipation in our minds about anything that was going into a script when somebody walked out of the office with a story sold we weren't sure what was going to come back ever that's in, that's interesting because there's an aspect of, of of the early episodes that seems utterly impossible that any any two people could have written for that series because it was just so weird and so different mm-hmm. it is kind of shocking that it worked at all well it was john's uh job to first of all work with the writers uh, that's why he was not only associate producer but executive story consultant or story editor uh, the writers would come in and sit with him after they had pitched the story to Gene and sold the, the idea. Then they were turned over to John, and they would come into John's office and sit down and say, I'm kind of stuck here. I'm not sure where to go with this story and, and this scene, because John knew the characters. So John would have to shape these scripts up and make them uh, feel like Star Trek, make the characters speak properly to sound like Kirk and sound like uh, McCoy and sound like Sulu and so forth. And then after John had finished doing that, and John would always try to respect the uh, original writer's work to the max, but obviously he had to change quite a bit of dialogue to make it sound like Star Trek. And then he would hand it over to Gene, and then Gene would do additional changes. Uh, and, and John believes, as others do, that he did more than he should have on some of these scripts. But also he was the creator of the show, and he had the vision of what that show would be, so creators sometimes have to trust their own judgment and go with it. But yeah, those first 16 episodes were being written and filmed before the series had even premiered on NBC. So you're working in a vacuum, and you pretty much have to depend on Gene Roddenberry and John D.F. Black and Mary Black, uh, but also Bob Justman was giving a lot of notes. So you had to pretty much depend on them to keep the, um, the scripts consistent with the integrity of the series and the characters. It really seemed interesting reading the book, how uh, the the stories were developed, and, and it seemed like there were a lot of freelance writers um, involved in the show and not really a writing staff, per se. Certainly not like you would um, find on today's television shows, you know, where they have like a writer's room and everything like that. Was that something which was unique to Star Trek even at the time, or was that just how shows were were run back then? That was the way they were. Comedies had staff writers, but most of the dramas and the melodramas didn't. They didn't have a staff. They just had freelance writers who knew the show and came in and pitched. And that Hmm. was... Oh, it's, it's a wholly different business. I don't know how a freelancer could make a living now. You can't. You can't. Uh, you have to get on staff, uh, or, or very few scripts are written by freelance. I think the Guild requires that uh, uh, something like uh, two scripts out of a season are assigned to freelance writers, and usually those go to the nephew of the producer. So it's all staff written now. And it's funny, you watch a show, like I was just watching uh, the final episode of Breaking Bad the other night, which I think is Star Trek of its time and the fact that it's such a well-written show. And you look at the opening credits of that, and I counted over ten producers. Now, all these producers are writer-producers. So the, this is the writing staff who all meet in the rooms and plan out the entire season and the character arcs of the entire season, and they help each other with the scripts. But back in the 1960s and 50s and 70s, but when Star Trek was being made, the first Star Trek, you had one producer 
and an associate producer. Now, John's credit was associate producer and executive story consultant. Today, he would just be called a producer uh, because of the amount of work that they were doing. But that's the way the credits read back then. So you had Gene, and you had John, and you had Bob Justman for the first half of the first season. And then when John decided to leave, and it was his choice, he and Mary decided they'd had enough of uh, work until 2 a.m. in the morning <laughs> at all this, uh, they brought in Gene Kuhn. And that was it. So you had a two- or three-man staff. Uh, there isn't much time for them to be writing their own scripts because they're mostly rewriting everybody else's scripts. And it's a totally different animal today. I, you know, I can see the pros and cons of both. You know, with the staff, you would have, you know, a group of writers who could work together to, you know, break stories and, and everything. But, you know, with freelance writers, you can have, you know, the top talent uh, in in the industry come in and, and pitch some wonderful ideas. Uh, this question is for all three of you. Which which do you think is better? Which do you prefer? Well, as a, as a TV writer mostly a former writer. I've kind of backed away from that in the last few years and I've turned to books. But I prefer the way it used to be done. When, when I was growing up and I was a teenager watching uh, Star Trek and watching all these great shows, I Spy and everything, and, uh, you know, back then you would make a living as a freelancer and you would, one week you're writing a Star Trek and the next month you're doing an I Spy and the month after that you're doing a Wild Wild West and, and on and on. And what a great way to make a living. There were so many imaginative shows back in that time period. Uh, or as John worked, you know, uh, writing for uh, various shows like Westerns, and then he's doing Star Trek, and then he's doing Hawaii Five O. How much fun is that? You know, but now you have to work on just one show. And that's a shame. Now, the advantage of it is everybody who's working there knows the show, and you're not having to rewrite freelancers' scripts like they did back then. The disadvantage is you're not getting writers like Theodore Sturgeon and Harlan Ellison and Robert Block and Jerry Soule. I mean, Star Trek brought in these famous science fiction authors to write a lot of their scripts. Now, none of these guys would be willing to come work on staff on one TV show. So by going to the staff system, you're losing the input of a lot of great authors and great writers that you can't have now. And look at The City on the Edge of Forever. Look at um, his episodes for The Outer Limits, like Demon with a Glass Hand. I mean, Harlan Ellison is brilliant. And why wouldn't you want to have that type of a writer available to you? But you can't have him now. Harlan's not going to go work on staff on some TV show and do only that. Okay, we're going to cut it right there for now because this interview was way too good to cut any significant amount of it out. So it's going to be a two-parter, and we're going to come back next week with the second part. Uh, where we continue to discuss These Are the Voyages with our guests. And you can find the book uh, on Amazon right now. It's been a whole lot of fun talking to Mark Cushman and John D.F. Black and Mary Black. About, Too much fun. We uh, need more time. <laughs> right, about the original series. But this is just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. Time travel and alternate realities. And then you have everybody else on The Defiant that we, you know, obviously don't know very well, but they all have somebody that's going to be affected. And then you think, too, 
Oh goodness, the whole entire Dominion War would have been affected if they hadn't gone back. Earl Grey. Episodes we love to defend. In the observation lounge, and he accidentally calls him number one, and then they look at each other like, oh, is he going to figure it out? I'm thinking, what do the frigging know? They don't know anything. <laughs> They're not like, wait, wait, let me look that up. Wait, that means something that Captain Picard calls his first... No, they don't know that. The ready room. Relics. In the day, I, I asked Ron about it, and he said, we just screwed up. I screwed up. Every producer screwed up. Mike and Rick, and, and uh, it wouldn't be Andre then. It would have been uh, it would have been Narain as the science advisor. It's like, nobody caught it. To the journey! Five-episode marathon. Yeah, with Aisha Tyler and Jerry Ryan, she talked about how when she signed up and actually signed the contract to become Seven of Nine, she'd never seen the show before, but she watched... An episode of Star Trek Voyager as she went home that night and was aired, but apparently it was like the worst episode ever. She literally cried that night because she's like, what on earth did I do? Commentary, Trek stars. Ronald D. Moore recap. So you're saying that you wish Star Trek was BSG? No. What Just I'm... say for the record that you wish Star Trek had never existed. <laughs> And that Battlestar Galactica was was uh, the the thing instead. Warp five. Enterprise season one Blu-rays. Towards the end of that particular documentary, Brandon expresses that he had been also feeling quite dejected and burnt out at the end of the first season, which makes me wonder. Yeah, you know, did he did he really have the energy? Did, did was it kind of only just hanging in there? Trek news and views. Halloween tracks played the um, the the murdering crazy person who has psychic visions and uh, can communicate with the ghosts. It was kind of a similar character to the one on Voyager, right? No, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Literary tracks. Demons of Erin Darkness. Well, what's what's interesting about it is is that you know, Kira, her gods haven't cast her out. You know, her people have. And it's a lot the same way of, you know, Luther and his 95 Theses and being kicked out of the Catholic Church and all of that happening. Because what Kira has brought to her people is is kind of a reformation. And introducing our TOS show, Standard Orbit. James Tiberius Kirk. No, Star Star Trek 4... I mean, aside from the bookend stuff, I don't really know how much Kirk grows there. It's it's kind of a standalone story in a lot of he, ways. He learns about whales and how it's bad to hunt any animal to extinction. <laughs> Which I guess is an, an important lesson to uh, learn. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can stream and download files on the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. So that's it. Big cliffhanger for the end of Season 2. We will I'm be- a Borg. <laughs> we will be back with Season 3 next week where we get to hear what... John D.F. Black has to say about the state of television today. 